Wow, what an intro. And you know what kind of intro that is. It means we're doing a reaction video. You might notice that we're in a different setup, but let me start the intro. Hi, I'm Michael, the man behind the machine. Welcome to The Found Cause, where we found our cause and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Next to me is... Sebastian, the bookkeeper. And we are gonna be doing a reaction video to Universalist today. Now you might ask, Universalist, haven't you guys already talked about Universalism? We talked about Unitarian Universalists before, and we've talked about hell, I think, twice now. But to be specific, this is the universalist group that believe that everybody is saved at some point or another. So they're called Christian universalists, typically, if they have that view that they believe in God and Jesus and the atonement through Jesus, except they believe that everybody is eventually allowed into heaven, whether it's through a period of purgatory or automatically right off the bat. But without further ado, Sebastian, do you have any preface to this before we get started? This way of thinking has been around for a very long time since Origen, a really strange person in the early church. Yep. And it's nothing new under the sun. So I have to say, let's just get right into it. And it's relevant because the Roman Catholics have a pretty sizable minority, at least, that believe in universalism amongst the, the bishops and probably the Pope himself right now, more than probably the Pope himself right now. And it's not uncommon for Protestants to also hold this view. So we would call it straight heresy. So let's not get confused. Those who say that there is no eternal death also call into question eternal life. So we would call it heresy, um, a denial of sin, and the cost for sin. But let's see her arguments. We'll be reacting to a podcast called Love Covered Life Podcast, and she defends Christian universalism. Let's go. Hey guys, welcome back to the channel. Today we're going to talk about the four most common arguments I get against universalism in my comments section. Don't forget to subscribe, don't forget to talk to me in the comments, even if you are arguing against universalism. I Maybe we'll have to comment. love hearing from you guys. Check out my description box for links to my Facebook and Instagram and my discussion group. We are live. So let's get right into it. Argument number one. If everyone's going to heaven, then why did Jesus have to die? That would be my first, actually, argument. If you're colloquially talking to a universalist, I would ask this um, first thing, especially if they aren't a hardened universalist. They're just a classic cultural Christian who thinks that everybody goes to heaven or doesn't believe in hell, whatever, but they call themselves a Christian. They're probably not a well-thought-out universalist. They're probably just defaultly one. So this is the first question I would recommend you ask to anybody. Let's see how she responds. Okay, we have to deal with this idea that everybody's dying and going straight to heaven. I'll get more into that in point number two, because that's really a straw man argument against universalism. But first, let's concede the questioner this point, and let's assume that universalists believe that everybody is dying and going straight to heaven. I don't... There's a lot of quotes here. I wonder if she spiritualizing things that she shouldn't but we'll see what she does yeah. really understand how this diminishes the cross of christ if everybody's dying and going to heaven then why did jesus have to die well according to the orthodox understanding of the gospel jesus died to take away the sins of the world different branches of christianity will explain that differently some will say that he died to take our punishment some will say that he died to defeat sin and death not really different branches there's a fringe branch that doesn't take the typical orthodox christian branch the orthodox meaning regular not eastern orthodox it believes in something called penal substitutionary atonement and that is that christ died for the penalty the penal penalty of sin which is death 
and it was substitutionary for our death, that we should have died for our sins, and that it atoned for us, meaning that we no longer have to pay for that penalty of sin, which is why we reject the Roman Catholic belief that Jesus only died for a portion of our sin, that instead we say he died for the whole thing, therefore he fully atones for us, he substitutes for us, and of course we reject universalism too, because it says um, that he died and substituted for the entire world, not a specific people, which we would also say is against that penal substitutionary atonement model. Um, she's describing some other ones. There's like Christ Victor theory and some mm -hmm. others um, that we would reject. Uh, it's not, it's not particularly hard to discern penal substitutionary atonement throughout the gospels, particularly the epistles. And so I don't think it's much of an argument. I've heard the arguments. Usually it's um, liberal Christians. And I don't mean that politically. I mean it in people who don't really believe that Christ was God mm -hmm. um, will take Christ victory theory, though there are some that, that do hold to that Christ is God, but they take Christ victory. So I won't make a, a great stance on whether or not Christ victory theory is damning, um, but these days it's very suspicious. It's pretty fringe. Right, right. And just so you're, we're all clear here, penal substitution of atonement is an idea that wasn't invented by Nicaea or any council. Right. It's the idea of how it even originated is a continuation from the Old Testament, a fulfillment, the completion of the Old Testament sacrifice system with the high priest and the entire epistle of Hebrews deals with that. So Christ is the ultimate sacrifice. God provided the sacrifice that he was commanding his people to do many representations of the sacrifice back in ancient Israel. So this isn't just like some wacky theory that was conjectured hundreds of years after Jesus. Right. Just just so we were clear on that but let's let's hear her response some will say that he died as an example to help us follow the ways of love but the one thing that orthodox christianity can pretty much agree upon across the board is that jesus died to take away in some manner the sin of the world so clearly and obviously now she's quoting scripture that says he died to take away the sins of the world however what we would say what the orthodox christian would say is that the language being used there is symbolic right that he takes away the sin of the world i.e the sin that came in through adam it's coming out of the world mm -hmm. via jesus christ what it doesn't mean is that every single sin on earth is being atoned for through jesus it means that all the sins that will be atoned for are through jesus and eventually the whole world will be purged of sin and only the righteous will stand on earth but there are plenty of passages which we'll get into once we hear some of her responses um, that talk about the wicked being punished and not being atoned for so keep that in mind if everybody is going to heaven, it's because Jesus died to save everybody. Jesus died to save the whole world. This is the standard Christian universalist view. Far and uh, just as a response, the whole world in the context, that's usually it's responding to like John 3.16. He sent his son um, that he so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever should believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life, right? So whoever believes in him shall it's not conditional. perish. Right? It's conditional, exactly. And um, so he, he loved the world, sent his son. That doesn't mean that he's redeeming the entire world, i.e. every single person. Often world refers to all the peoples of the earth. So not just the Jews, but also the Gentiles, which is a big theme throughout the Bible. I'm sure you're familiar if you're a Christian. So the redemption of the world is really all the peoples of the world. It's not a universal mindset. Far from diminishing the cross, it exalts the cross. It exalts what Jesus did. It exalts God's power and wisdom and ability. It makes a whole lot. 
to one extent she's right in that it is exalting as far as like he's the number of those saved is increasing in a universalist view by default right because we would say some are damned mm -hmm. and some are not we say a vast multitude are saved so orthodox christians believe that a vast multitude countless multitude are saved however we don't believe that everyone is saved and we would say there's a large portion at least today in the modern day that aren't saved um so yes it's increasing the number that jesus saves if you believe in a universalist view however what it's not doing is showing jesus's justice he's not showing god's justice so we would say while it might increase his glory abounds and his grace abounding his justice is not shown and that is part of the entire reason we would argue for the redemptive story is to show both his mercy and his grace as roman 9 says um is it not um god's plan can it not be god's plan to show grace on some vessels that he's made and then his justice on others so that's what we'd say the theme of the bible one of the themes of the bible is him showing his justice and his mercy mm -hmm. And just to even throw more stuff in here, something that really stood out to me was from Jude, the epistle to Jude, very short. And right away near the, the top of the, near the introduction. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once and for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation were written about long ago, or individuals who were marked out for condemnation have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. What do you get from this? There's some people who are ungodly, they're evil, and they are wolves that have snuck into the church. And God has prepared them for separation, condemnation. Yeah, meaning before hand right so before they even did the acts they were prepared for this role to be the ones that were condemned to to first of all show god's justice but also to try the church and to build and sanctify the church and the testing that they'd have through wolves coming in so and this is not unique to jude that's language that's seen mm -hmm. from jesus in the gospels it's certainly seen from paul it's seen in revelation so it's seen throughout the new testament this language of there are some who are prepared for destruction people and angels and demons and the rest so again you'll have to condemn with those kind of scriptures if you go to universalism but we've let her talk very little a lot more sense than the alternative view that jesus died to save only a few or that jesus died to save the whole world but wasn't ultimately able to do so we'll say we believe that he died for a specific people also known as the elect in the Bible, he talks about his elect. Jesus says to the Jews in John, um, I know my, my sheep know me. I know my sheep. My, anybody that's father has given to me, I will not lose one of them. You, he tells to the Jews who are listening to him at the time, um, you don't know me because you aren't my sheep. Right? So you don't understand my words because you aren't my sheep, meaning that they are not chosen. So Jesus did die for a specific people. And so that makes it makes a perfect amount of sense for Jesus to die for a specific amount of people. I would say the only thing that makes it not make sense to those like this podcaster is when you think that God is loving and a loving God wouldn't damn anybody, which we would say a loving God loves justice and mercy. And that's why he shows both his mercy and his justice. Mm -hmm. To believe that God created the whole world, knowing that ultimately most people would end up in eternal torment. I mean, no wonder so many people are depressed. What kind of a miserable worldview is that? Um, the Christian universalist view of the cross that Jesus died so that all could be saved is built on the foundation of God's goodness, assumes that we live in a good and benevolent universe, 
assumes that God is actually all-powerful and that we were never in any danger because he is a loving father who's looking out for our best interests. How does that diminish God's goodness or God's power or the, the necessity of what Jesus did? Actually, if there are any infernalists watching this, I would put this question back to you. Why is it that for the cross of Christ to be exalted, only a few can be saved? I'll say this, I'll just use Jesus' mm -hmm. own words. He makes an analogy in Matthew 25, um, where he talks about in the end of days, there'll be two sets of people, the goats and the sheep. And he says to the ones on his right, the sheep, those are chosen by him. So all the righteousness is from Jesus. It's been placed in them by God. So it's not their own works. They're not boasting it of themselves. But he says to them, blessed are you, um, come and share in the kingdom, right, of the Father, because you fed me when I was hungry, gave me, um, drink when I was thirsty, cover me when I was naked, etc. It goes in this long list. You might be familiar. And they say, Lord, we never saw you doing these things. And he says, whoever, whenever you closed uh, somebody, uh, one of these brothers of mine, whenever you gave drink to one of these brothers of mine, you did so for me, right? We know that passage. I'm sure you love it. Um, person we're reacting to, right? I'm sure you love that concept. Most universalists do because most people love that concept, right? But on the flip side, Jesus himself does the parallel because he says, he then says to those on his left, all the goats, he says, um, curse be you, depart into the eternal fire, um, for I, I was hungry and you did not give me food. I was thirsty and you did not give me rest. I was in prison and you didn't, you didn't visit me, etc. And they say, Lord, why did we not do these things? And he says, for those you ignored, right? For the, the least of the people that you didn't do these things for, you also denied me. And then he cast them out to eternal death. And then right in contrast in Matthew 25 and 41 through 50, you'll see he contrasts the eternal death and punishment, the fire that those goats go into and the eternal life that the righteous go into. So not only does God reward righteousness and show his graciousness and mercy and, and good faith there to the righteous, but he also shows his justice and love for those who these wicked people have hurt by giving them full justice, right? Not only their rebellion against people and their hurt against people, but also their rebellion against the living God, which is why it's an eternal punishment. So that is the justice that needs to be shown if God was going to reveal his full character. And if he saves everyone, it definitely shows his mercy. And I agree that Jesus could save everyone, but he doesn't because he also has a just character. Mm -hmm. And he, I would say he displays more love for others who have been wronged by giving justice to those who have perpetrated the harm, the hurt, the evil, the selfishness. In a way, when you decide to sin, when you decide to hurt someone else, you are saying, I know better. I want to do things my way. What does that mean? You're actually usurping right. God's authority. In that way, you're usurping God's authority by saying, no, I know better. I want to do things the way I want to do things. Okay, well, if you want to be your own God, clearly you can you are not submitting to the one and only God. So therefore, if you don't want to submit to God, because again, the people in hell, they don't want to submit to God. They are going to be permanently separated from him because that's what they want. They are their own. They want to be their own gods. Mm -hmm. And it's not like we cooked this up because we wanted this vision of God. We are, uh, we take the position, infernalists, as you call us, traditional Christians that have a regular view of hell. Um, we take the hell position because Jesus teaches it, because the epistles teach it. 
like from that example from Matthew 25, this is what Jesus is teaching about the punishment for the wicked and the reward for the righteous. So it's not that we cook this up because we wanted this to be the vision of how God is. We take God's word and we take that to describe how God actually is. We don't take something we want God to be and try to shove it into scripture. And I think we should all take that kind of view. So if we do that, if we, you know, hold us to the same standard, if we take a vision of God that we would like to see and try to shove it into scripture, well, we should not do that, right? We should let scripture speak to us about God, not the other way around. Mm -hmm. Why is it that for the cross to be worth something, most of the world's population must suffer eternal torments in hell? Again. Because I'm failing we to say see it comes the from the word here. Argument number two. If everybody's going to heaven, then what's the point of living a good life? Sometimes I even get, if everybody's going to heaven, then why do you even bother making this video? If what you say is true, it doesn't matter what any of us do. Ironically, this type of question is usually coming from the evangelical Christian crowd that believes that the only way of salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ and not by our works, so they don't even believe that our good works can save us anyway. That aside, like I said before, this is a straw man argument against universalism. With the exception of a few of my brothers and sisters in the finished work camp, some of them believe that everybody is going to die and wake up in heaven with no um, consequence for the way that they live their lives on earth. But like I just stated, Evangelical Christians as a whole believe that anybody who has faith in Christ is going to die and wake up in heaven regardless of how they live their life. Even Hitler, if on his deathbed, by some slim chance, he had accepted Christ as his savior, an Orthodox Christian of any variety would be compelled to accept that Hitler is going to heaven without any consequences for his actions. But that's it's well, not entirely true. I mean, we believe, I, I agree that Hitler could have received Christ. I don't think he did, but that he could have received Christ on his deathbed and had those sins paid for. However, you do have consequence for the sins you did on earth, i.e. it's missed opportunity gain because there's rewards in heaven and in the next life for the good you build here and what kind of character God has given you here on earth. So there's still worthwhile work to do here on earth. And we would always say that works, good works here, prove out your salvation so it's not what saves you but it does show that you are saved which is why the good christian is compelled by the holy spirit within him to do good works here mm -hmm. let's expand on that i do what i do i serve my church i serve others i want to do this podcast i learn about some weird unique things about uh, our church and how it has acted in history why because we would hold as presuppositionalists that the spirit is in us that is what has changed us and with Christ in us. And now he bought us for a price. We were slaves to sin. Now we belong to Christ. We, we didn't deserve any mercy. He showed us mercy. We are eternally indebted to him. Not because we want to bribe and pay him back, but because we love him. Because we love Christ. That's why we're doing all these things. That's why we're acting. So the love of Christ, I would say, actually compels us it's now in our nature to want to serve right. the lord to serve one another in in his holy name so that's why you should want to live a good life if you truly are yeah. saved now i'll say to her point i do think she has a point in that for her first point she says 
how are people getting to heaven? Why did Jesus have to die? Well, she's claiming, if I'm understanding mm-hmm. correctly, that Christ had to die to pay for the sins of the world. So it's not that Christ's death is made null. It's just she believes that he paid for everyone, mm-hmm. right? So, okay, and that's not what the Bible says, of course. So this comes down to scripture, right? And then she goes on a tirade about how, why does God have to be the way you want? Well, I'm just reading about the God of the Bible. I don't know what God you're reading about. Um, so th- I would just point back to scripture in point one. Point two, she says, oh, it, she says it's a straw man to say, I think that's the wrong fallacy to be pointing out, but that she says it's, a, it's really a red herring. It's, I guess, kind of a straw man to say, um, why does anybody even need to be a good person if there's Christian universalism? Because she's saying that um, you would want to, I'm sure she would support us and say that you'd want to be a good person here because it's good to be a Christian. Like it's enjoyable to be a Christian here. So might as well live a good life mm. here into the next. Okay. I think um, more important, uh, more pointed question under point number two would be why does God care about this life? If the next life is really when things get started. Ah, uh, yes. I have met some people who are all about, you know, doesn't matter. Not that they don't do whatever they want, but they really care so much more about the life to come. The life to come is good, but likewise, we've been placed here for a purpose to build Christ's kingdom on earth. That's that's why he says, go and make disciples of all tribes, peoples, and nations. So clearly there's an expectation, and we want to fulfill that expectation because we belong to Christ, to do his will on earth. So doing things here is good. Right, and I don't think she'd disagree. Um, but this is not a point that I would say disproves universalism. It just kind of makes universalism a... Mm-hmm. Not that important right. point. Right. That's a little bit beside the point. Universalists, as a general rule, don't believe that anybody is dying and going to heaven without consequences for their actions, at least um, in the Christian universalist crowd. Those who haven't accepted faith in Christ will have some type of consequences for their actions. Universalists outside of Christianity, they typically believe in reincarnation or some type of soul evolution after this life to repay karmic debts. I think the disconnect comes in here because most Christians are operating under the notion that Jesus died to somehow pay the debt that we owe God or to earn our salvation for us through his good works and then take the punishment that we deserve for our sins. Penal substitutionary atonement. It's interesting. I just want to note that she pointed to the finished work crowd, which is that's a Christian um, universalist view that I'm familiar with, meaning that Christ finished the whole work. Like we would say that Christ finished the entire work. Um, So those who are um, dead to life and, and living in Christ when they die, the finished work of Jesus brings them to heaven immediately. There's no purgatory. There's no purging. She clearly is not of that camp because she points to them as a separate camp. And she's saying that anybody who has sin left in them, so those who don't have faith in Christ or whoever, I don't know what her categories are exactly, um, need some sort of purging in punishment before they get into heaven, which is interesting. It's what the Catholics hold too, right? Catholics hold a different version of it. They say only those believing in Christ but that still have sin um, are through purgatory, although... Nowadays. Nowadays, who knows, right? But that's the traditional view of purgatory. We would, of course, call purgatory, maybe not a course, but if you've seen our, our Catholic episodes, we would call purgatory a fundamental denial of the gospel because it goes down to the root point of the fact that they say, Catholics believe, that Christ only pays for a portion of your sin and the rest is up to you. And Paul calls that anathema in Galatians. He calls that um, you're alienated from Christ. Anybody who wants to mix law and grace is alienated from Christ. I mean, you're cut off. You're anathema. You're cut off from the gospel. Never had Christ to begin with. So we would say, yes, we want to do good works here. And yes, you're rewarded for good works in heaven. But 
you are not justified by your good works. So if you think that you can be purged of your evil in a period of time of punishment and purgatory, that is like saying your good works, your penance and purgatory can earn you salvation. And again, in that case, why did you need Christ's initial sacrifice? If there's purging that can purge any amount of sin, why didn't we all just pur get purged and Christ not have to go through his, his sacrifice? So that goes back to point number one. For the finished work crowd, point number one is, is at least logically sound, even if it's not scripturally sound. But for those who believe there's purging, I, don't, I think point one still stands as a, a problem for the universalist. So we aren't punished as we deserve. We don't experience the consequences of our actions as we deserve. And then we also don't have to live a good life to earn God's favor because Jesus did it for us. But this viewpoint is firmly rooted in the penal substitutionary atonement oh, look, theory it. of imputed punishment and righteousness, which I find extremely distasteful and damaging. Nice. That, Whoa. that would be orthodox Christianity is imputationist, some would call us. So those who believe that the righteousness of Christ is imputed to his followers. Um, that is totally orthodox. Those who don't hold to that are unorthodox. They are fringe. Um, there are there there are a sizable minority of people who don't hold to that, but that's not the normal way. So when she says orthodox Christians fit into both buckets, they really don't. Fringe Christians aren't imputationists. I mean, but that goes, I mean, Isaiah 53 it's all about like he was pierced for our transgressions. Mm -hmm. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we're healed. Right. So that, that's a prophecy, of course, about the Messiah and describes what his act did. And is one of one of the primary texts we would go to to talk about um, the penal substitutionary portion of penal substitutionary atonement. Mm -hmm. said earlier that most orthodox... And it's not surprising that... that a God-hater would find penal substitutionary atonement and the imputation of righteousness on us um, distasteful and damaging. Orthodox Christians believe that Jesus died to, in some way, take away the sin of the world. And I'd be lying to you if I said I could really consider myself an Orthodox Christian at this point. Although recently, with my study of very early Christianity after Jesus Christ, I'm beginning to realize that the set of beliefs that developed into what we now consider Orthodox Christianity, um, was just one view of many that existed in the early centuries after Christ. And the reason why it prevailed is because it found favor with the Roman emperors. And early on... What's interesting, because we've done so many, Sebastian in particular, I should point to, has done so much research onto non-Roman Christianity, the Christianity that went out to India, to the East, to Persia, to the, the Sassanids, to even the ones that existed under Muslims and into the Far East and China. And they all have penal substitutionary atonement because that's the Christian view. That's what's in scripture. So, yes, there were early church fathers in the, in the, the Roman East, so our West in the grand scheme of things, but the Roman East. Um, like Origen, like Sebastian had said, that believed in universalism and others that believed in Christ's victory and some other weird ones like uh, um, Satan's, um, what's it called, bribe, the ransom, the ransom, ransom theory, theory, and yeah. some other ones like that. But they were quickly snuffed out because they just don't hold water in scripture. So while I would say some of those church fathers, because it was so early, can still be saved because they, were the, they weren't really denying God's truth, they just didn't know it. Um, I would say that those today that deny God's truth when it's so evident are very suspect of being not saved at all. And so I would say for you, um, our lovely reaction guest, that your hatred of traditional Christianity way of salvation and the fact that you'd be pointing to very primitive Christian beliefs as defense of your 
belief might mean that your belief is primitive and unscripturally sound. If you don't get to it, I think midway through this, we will start diving into the scriptures. We already have a couple of them that talk about not only penal substitutionary atonement, but also there's plenty of scripture out there about Jesus comparing those who are wicked and damned and those who are righteous and are saved, which shows that there are two classes. So it's it's uh, you're really fighting with scripture, not with people here, if you deny penal substitutionary atonement. Yes, and we have gone over the Didache, which shows there's, you know, there's two ways the way of life, the way of death. So clearly, you know, there's a contrast already there. Didache being an early church oh, yes. document. Yes, very early on. And also one of my favorite church fathers, Clement of Rome. We assume he would have been the Clement mentioned in the epistles of Paul. Mm-hmm. So pretty, pretty early on, right? Next generation after the apostles. Not by ourselves, nor by our wisdom or understanding or piety or the works which we have done in holiness of heart but by faith by which God Almighty has justified all from the beginning, to whom the glory be forever and ever. So again, it's just all credited to God. He is the one who has done the work for us. So what we do goes to God. And I would actually argue as far as early church fathers go, it only happens like 100 or 150 years after Christ that you start to get some of the wonky um, theology that we know about, like Origen or Athanasius's view and some others. And we, we defend Irenaeus and Athanasius and others as Christians. It's just they had a strange view of exactly how a salvation works. So you point again to a confused time in church history to say, oh, yes, my view is found in that time. But we've worked out so much since then, 2000 years. So we would call your view suspect and again, point you back to scripture. Can you defend your view using scripture? And if you can't, I would wager that you can't really call yourself a true Christian. Um, Like you even admit yourself, you're hard to call yourself an Orthodox Christian. Christians had many and varied ideas about what Jesus came to accomplish. Some believe that it was his overheating camera cross that saved us. Some believe that it was following the Jewish law that saved them. And all of these were competing views within early Christianity. Early Christianity never held to following the law saving you. I, I don't even know what view that is. The Judaizers, I guess, is what she's claiming. Called out by as anathema, yeah, as non-Christians by the by the apostles. So those aren't early Christians. Those are early Christian heretics. I, I do believe that it was Jesus' life, death and resurrection that served to save us or awaken us by propelling us oh nice that's some uh that's new age yeah that's some new age Oy. forward in our evolution and allowing us and helping us to overcome the ego or the sin or flesh nature so i assume i don't know your background melissa but i would assume you you come from a traditional christian background and have come to these things because these are all new age teachings you've tacked on to Christianity. They're not Christian teachings. So it's really your own religion you've created, not a Christian religion. I just want to warn you because these things you're teaching, ego obviously comes from Freud, um, which is not the Bible. And so that's not what sin is referred to in the Bible is not the ego. That concept wasn't even around at the time. And even if you go to like platonic ideals and other um, philosophies of the time, the Bible is separate from those. And so the concepts related in the Bible like sin are as they are taught in the traditional church, that sin is a rebellion against God, law that he gave, and you rebelled against hatred of God. That's what sin is, not ego in and, any case. Yeah, and you know, for these beliefs, you can hold them if and only if you can get them out from Scripture. Right. Why Scripture? Why Scripture? Why not Freud? Why not 
Play-Doh, why not Eastern mysticism? Why not that? Because if we're, if we're saying we're Christians, the Bible is the word breathed out by God. Therefore, that is our point of reference in what the spiritual realm is like. Yep. We don't conjecture it ourselves because we're not in the spiritual realm at the moment. I, mean, I think we would all agree on that. We're not God. We can't read minds. Therefore, the source that we have at the moment to God would be his revelations, his scripture. Hence why we go to it for truth. At least it is, even if you think there are other sources, at least it is the definitive source that we can all agree on. And so if your views contradict scripture, well, then you know you're in the wrong. Unless you want to call yourself non-Christian, which, you know, <laughs> we would agree. So I, and we'd call you to come to Christ. I just want to be upfront with you guys about what I believe. There are Christian universalists who believe penal substitutionary atonement theory and believe that Jesus came to take the punishment that we deserve for our sins. And that through that penal sacrifice, all will eventually be reconciled to God. There's a broad range of opinions, even within the broad term Christian universalist. I would believe that, and I talked about this finished work crowd. That's that's the one that I was familiar with. I think that's the one that pervades the Roman Catholic Church. But it, if it allows for purgatory, again, it has the same problem that Roman Catholics have, and that is that it's really not a finished work. It's an unfinished work of Christ. So the finished work crowd says there is no purgatory, which I can at least respect that, even though it's not scriptural, it logically makes sense, right? That's a logical possibility that isn't scripturally true. Whereas the purgatory one like distorts the very nature of God, not just what he has done, but what he would do. And so um, I believe you, Melissa, and that there are many broad views inside the Christian universalist movement, but I'm not surprised that there are, considering it's just a, a rebellion against scripture. And once you leave scripture, you, there's a lot of room for for theories, conjecture, philosophy, vain philosophy, as scripture calls it. And scripture says to avoid vain philosophy. So that's why we try to stay. If we, if we engage, me and Sebastian or any other Orthodox Christian engages in vain philosophy, I think we should be called out. We've called out on this channel before people like William Lane Craig, who goes away from scripture to argue for traditionally orthodox beliefs like the trinity and whatever else creationism etc but he does it with vain philosophy not with scripture so we would point that out and say that that's a flawed way of doing apologetics and so equally we would say to you don't hold to man-made philosophies hold to scripture and even broader within universalists across the board but these are my personal thoughts on it what if it was never about earning a right standing with god what if nothing had to be paid or earned, even by Jesus? So it goes back to point number one. So she's like, oh, yeah, point number one. Why did Jesus have to die? Well, he had to pay for sin. It was really like, what if he had to pay for sin? Because she doesn't actually believe he needed to, which is, I'm seeing the true colors. This is more of like the universalism that I'm used to, because mm -hmm. I would say the Christian, the true Christian universalist, the Finnish work crowd, which again, I said, I think are logically consistent, even though they're not scripturally consistent. I've, I haven't met any of them personally because uh -huh. it's a rare view. What if we are all beloved children of God already and eternally in right standing with God, just like any child would be in right standing with their parents. There's nothing that they can do to lose their parents' love or earn it back. It's uh, uh, Here's a controversial take. That's not true. According to God's word, if we, again, if we hold to God's word, his law says that disobedient children can be put to death by the parents. Now, that's often used by atheists to be like, oh, little three-year-old, like, doesn't want to eat his peas. 
hang them, right? That's not what the scripture is about. In fact, it's talking about men, grown-ups, that are children of people that are still in your house and they're, they're dishonoring the parents, that if they're consistent in that, you can bring them to trial and have them put to death. Do we have any examples of that happening? No, I don't think it would have happened very often at all, probably a rarity. But in any case, it tells you the severity that God, the giver of the law, um, treats disobedient, disobedience to parents. And while parents are important, they're just humans. God is a heavenly parent and is far greater than a parent. So disobedience against him is a much worse um, consequence than disobedience against your parents. So if the disobedience and dishonoring of your earthly parents can result in earthly death, then the disobedience against your heavenly parent will lead to eternal, heavenly, helly, hellishly, infernally um, damnation. So you can be in bad standing with your parents. That's true on earth and it's true in heaven. What if we are here as children of God for the purpose of experiencing spiritual growth and evolution? In this growth process, we experience the consequences of our actions. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection serve to save us from ourselves, from our own ego, our own illusions, our own madness that keeps us trapped in a cycle of sin and death and karma or consequences. Mm, Neo-Gnosticism, nice. We have karma in here. We've got the like trap of the flesh i mean to some extent sin and flesh like yeah they are a trap for all humans so but she's using language of like eastern mysticism not the language of scripture so while those concepts kind of fit right sin is trapped in the flesh and paul talks about hating the flesh and living by the spirit and that we're waiting for this flesh to die so we can be resurrected in sinless flesh agreed but those are the those that's the language of scripture the karma and the ego those are languages of of modern psychology and eastern mysticism and the new age stuff um so it it honestly it goes back to the very first question that she asked and she dodged by taking somebody else's position and saying that what if jesus had to die to pay the sins of the world <laughs> okay um, but she's really saying that jesus died as an example to us um, which is not consistent with answering the first question she had of why did jesus have to die so She's revealing her true colors here. And that first question, like I recommended in the beginning, is the question to ask any universalist, um, whether they're prepared or not. For actions. It had nothing to do with our relationship to God. It didn't pay or earn anything. There's nothing to earn or pay. We love each other because we are love expressing itself in this world. When we do not live in love, we reap the consequences of that. And this is going to be heresy in Christian circles, but... Nobody can take the consequences of our actions. We must... <laughs> I agree that it is heresy. <laughs> it is heresy. And it's also a hopeless gospel. I mean, it's as hopeful as she wants to make it seem because she's saying everybody gets saved. To say that you have to pay your consequences, if you really knew your consequences, that's where you'd suddenly be hopeless because the true consequences for any amount of sin against God, big or small, because there are bigger sins and there are smaller sins, all of them result in eternal death because you rebelled against the eternal father. That's why the gospel starts with the bad news, that everybody is damned because of their own personal actions, your own consequence. So yes, you do have to deal with your own consequences. And if you do, you will spend eternity separated and destroyed and under the punishment and judgment of the Father. That's why the good news comes afterwards. And that is those who put their trust and faith in Jesus Christ, who has paid their particular sins, can live with the Lord forever and will be held with him and not have to pay their own consequence so if you don't have substitution you have only damnation not only uh, glorification and really where this is all coming from in this i think this is a big stumbling block for a lot of people is starting with the assumption the baseline that everyone is basically good 
you know, right. Living Waters Ministry always brings out this question, do you think you're a good person and all of that? I used to, you know, for the record, I, would, I used to think that way too. And then what really hit home was, my goodness, I cannot compare. Like if you put God next to me and you compare both of us, I fall short, way, 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 way short from the glory of God. So how could I possibly be my hope to either be, quote unquote, equal to him or be with him in his kingdom? On your own, you cannot. Nothing you can. You, we, we are not perfect. We're not like God. We cannot be on our own merit. We cannot climb up to there. Hence why what Christ did for us, he cleaned, he cleaned our spirits for us, for the work that we couldn't do. That's the whole point. Understanding how far away we are from God is really the first step, I would say. So it seems that she's starting at the baseline. We're all pretty much good people. Yeah, which is ignoring realities or ignoring scripture. It's ignoring plain reality of sinful people, um, which means that her supposed hopeful gospel, if you can just do it yourself and be saved yourself um, through looking to Jesus Christ, is actually a hopeless gospel because it takes away the actual power that saves. Grow through them. And the only way to resolve them is through forgiveness, both giving and receiving. That's where I do agree with the traditional Christian understanding of um, faith for forgiveness of sins because forgiveness does resolve karma because it removes guilt and the need to keep repeating the same life. Where are you getting this knowledge? You're on butt cheeks. You have to get things from scripture. If you just come up with them on your own, oh, that makes sense to me. How do you know it's truth? Because we're easily deceived. When you were two years old, you thought Santa Claus is real, but he's not. So how do you know that your philosophy is at 20 or 30 or 50, um, considering that's a very short amount of time, considering the length of the universe and the age of God? Um, how do you know that you have enough wisdom to call something true or not? The initial sin of Adam and Eve was eating of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, the new fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which they thought suddenly... They thought they knew what was good and what was bad. So they thought they could judge what was good and bad. They thought suddenly that being naked was bad, but that was wrong. And therefore, that's the genesis of all sin. It's thinking that we know what's good and bad when we really don't. Only God does. Lessons over and over. But it's absolutely ridiculous, in my opinion, to say that Jesus took the consequences for our sin. I mean, all you have to do is look around you in the world to see that that's not true. If you murder somebody you're going to go to prison or say you don't get caught. You're going to live with the psychological turmoil of what you've done for the rest of your life. That's consequences. That's suffering. Yes, he didn't take away our earthly consequences, but know that every sin against another person is ultimately a sin against God. So the consequences that you either see or don't see on earth are not the consequences that God gives to you. God gives you final consequences. And he says he accounts for every single thing you've ever done, as it says in the throne room scenes of God in Revelation and in Genesis and in Job, um, where God is a throne and he's accounting for every sin done. And there will be an accuser against you to say, um, Michael did this, Sebastian did this, right? Every single thing you've done, you've murdered somebody, you've lied, you've cheated, you haven't loved God this day, you were lazy, whatever. Um, all of those sins will be accounted for. And then God has a, has a consequence for each one that is not the earthly consequence. So it's not the, the conscious guilt that you had for murdering somebody on earth. That's just an earthly consequence. You will have eternal damnation because of the sin that, that it was to murder somebody against God, right? So Jesus paid for that consequence, not your earthly consequence. That's karma. That's how we learn and grow. That's how God has designed the universe to work. If you run out in front of oncoming traffic, 
you're going to get hit by a car. Jesus doesn't stop the consequences for our actions. Um, he helps us to free our minds, to be born again, to awaken to our true nature and our true reality so that we can grow out of that. I have actually heard that from other progressive preachers. I mean, that are a little bit more, actually not, I wouldn't say they're more orthodox. They're progressive. We'll just leave there. No yeah. orthodoxy, still heresy. But they're starting to use, you know, that girl out, born again. They use metanoia, which is repent, what's change your mind, repentance, to also imply this sort of like liberation feeling. Like you're not really repenting and changing your ways. You're like being in, in a way enlightened. And I'm wondering what she means by that because it can mean so much because you hear from the new age and like everybody and their mom that's like, oh, I've come to a new understanding and it's that we don't actually have to change our ways. We have to be enlightened and like change our understanding. And I wonder if she means that she said, come come to terms, come to a realization of your true nature, that your true nature is good and, and free yourself from the cycle of karma. It sounds very Buddhist to me. Like, are you supposed to get yourself out of caring about things? Is that what realizing your true nature is? That you're a spirit being? Is it like Christian science and that the real physical world isn't real or important? I, I don't know what she means by that. I, she might not know herself. So no, nobody dies and goes straight to heaven. We continue our growth process for as long as is necessary, even after this life. We continue to reap the consequences of our actions so that we can be purified. I I wonder if, she, if she's talking about purgatory, so purging period before heaven, or if she's talking about reincarnation. Probably reincarnation is yeah. what I'm getting the impression. Based on the karma comments, but I don't know. I have never in any one of my videos stated that anybody dies and goes straight to a place called heaven to live there for eternity and never experience the consequences of any of their actions. I have always stated that I do believe there is further purification to be had for probably all of us. That doesn't mean that people are going to hell. Well, what do you want to say? Because no one, ex no one in heaven is experiencing the consequences of their action uh, right. Because Christ bore all of that. When he was carrying his cross, when he was humiliated, when they were whipping, when the Jewish Pharisees were spitting and scoffing at him, when he was pierced up on the cross, he... He bore all those consequences. So yes, praise God that he showed mercy upon us so that we wouldn't have to bear those consequences. And in fact, let the record show that if you say with your mouth you believe in Jesus, but then you're going out and getting smashed or getting high every day of the week. And if you are, you know, if you have 10 wives, you know, steal cheat in business and whatnot you are demonstrating your faith is not real you are spitting on the sacrifice on the beautiful sacrifice of christ you're not honoring it and therefore you're you're cut off so all true christians will not go running around willy-nilly and doing shenanigans not caring about what christ did so and what's interesting is so her logic previously was that Jesus didn't pay all consequences for sin clearly because we still see earthly consequences. But then she also says that there will be consequences in heaven, prior to heaven, so in this purging period. Mm -hmm. So she agrees that there are non-earthly consequences that happen. 
which is what I said about Jesus paying for those consequences. So I think she just needs to get some some clear categories here for what consequences mean. Because mm-hmm. I would say there are earthly, my categories would be that there are earthly consequences and then eternal consequences. And that Jesus paid the eternal, the, the sins against God, right? The sins against man's and nature still have their own payment, right? That it eventually results in death. Everybody dies here because of our sin against man and, and nature. But sins against God result in spiritual death, not just bodily death. And that is what Jesus has paid for. So she agrees that there is this spiritual debt that we have against God because of our sin, because of our consequences um, eternally that isn't paid out in life. It's paid out in death. So yes. I wonder how much it would take for her to realize that that is what Jesus pays for. It just means there's more lessons for us to learn. This life is not the end-all, be-all of everything, and then we go sit on the clouds forever. No. We would agree that this life is not the end-all, be-all. It's very important, and it's a temporary period, you know, for the, compared to eternity. It's a small amount of time. But it, uh, we, we won't sit around in the clouds forever because any Orthodox Christian believes that the earth will be remade and that we will live eternally as we were designed to be on earth with our father heavenly father all things made new our bodies purified and sin destroyed and the pun and the punishment on the wicked acting as a reminder of god's great and mighty justice and my i would say my humble and i would say faithful speculation would be that we will be working we will be eating we -hmm. will be eating we'll just not experience death because we will not have sin on us so we will you will not just be singing doing nothing. We probably will be singing, but I think you'll want to sing, especially if you're standing in the presence of God. And we will be working. As I have said before, I call dips on the vineyards, but you know, God can definitely decide right. on that. But it will be a good earth as what was intended. Like if you like Star Wars Episode 4, you're going to love Star Wars Episode 5. If you like life, you're going to love eternal life because it's better and with more action. So, you know, it's not sitting around there. It's not worse than life today. Oh, there's lessons to be learned. There's adventures to be had. There is growth to take place. We are on a process, on a journey back towards God. That is what I have always said. That's what I've taught from the beginning. Now, not all so she has taught from the beginning would agree with me. She must Some be the guru. Some do teach that there is an eternal afterlife hell that people go to to receive the punishment for their sin and that they will be there for. Uh-huh. An age or so we're discovering she doesn't God believe in purgatory. Others believe in purgatory. She must. It must be reincarnation. To God. Some Christian universalists believe that everybody will be offered another chance to accept Jesus Christ after they die. Like a Mormon. And can see clearly who he is. And that who in their right mind would not accept Christ in that state. But even the Mormons have to contend. So they don't have to because they ignore scripture other places. But they do contend with those like Judas Iscariot, the betrayer of Jesus, who Jesus explicitly calls out as damned, right? So that man, they say, is a son of perdition. And that there are other sons of perdition throughout history that are particular and rare and that they're damned. We, of course, don't think that, that we do believe that those are damned, but we believe that anybody that rejects Christ is damned. Um, but uh, you have to contend with specifically the specific characters that we know are sent to eternal punishment. Um, so for those who say that there isn't eternal punishment or that everybody gets a chance to accept Jesus and who doesn't accept Jesus, they have to, usually they have to make a space for Judas, for the beast and the false prophet, for the devil and his angels, for presumably for Hitler and other people that we deem too irredeemably evil, um, that they would reject Christ after death too. We don't believe that Christ gives you a second chance. You already had your chance. Christ gives an example in the gospels of, um, 
two men that die, one poor man, Lazarus, who ends up in um, the good side of Sheol, Abraham's bosom, and one rich man who dies and ends up in the bad side of Sheol, awaiting judgment. And the bad side of Sheol is bad. He's thirsty. It's, it's a place of groaning and mourning. And he looks up to the good side of Sheol, of Abraham's bosom, and says to Moses, please, if you'll only give me a drop of dew from, from your space. Um, and, and Moses says, I can't. The chasm is too wide. And then he says, oh, please, at least then go and tell my family about the consequences here, right? So that they will turn and believe and be saved. And Moses says, they already have the prophets. They don't need me. And they wouldn't believe me even if I showed up. So we would say the same thing, that if you rejected Christ in life and then you die and you see the consequences and Christ there offers you salvation, that you would still reject him because of the nature of why you rejected him in life. And that is that you aren't his sheep. You don't like him. You have no love for God. Yeah. So why would you want to recognize him as your savior if you don't love him? Just like the demons, right? They know who Jesus is, but they don't obey him. They fear him. They're like They know he's powerful and they are afraid of him, but they don't fear him in the holy way of obeying him. Yes. And I do have something from Hebrews here. It's actually from Hebrews 9. Not only does it say on the topic of purgatory that Jesus Christ entered once the holy place in heaven, Otherwise, he would have to suffer many times since the creation of the world. Mm -hmm. But he was he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Again, sacrifice, theme of sacrifice, fulfilling the Old Testament prophecy. Just as people are destined to die once and after face judgment. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many and he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. And and see, uh, here's another point. Um, Melissa, how do you get Je Jesus' return into your view? Is it some weird spiritual return? I'm starting to, to understand your view. Is it is a strange spiritual, Jesus was a guru kind of guy, that I would assume you started Christian, I don't know your whole story. I would assume you started Christian and have come into these new age beliefs. They are lies, and they come from a non-Christian worldview that has tacked Jesus on. You could have Jesus or not have Jesus in these worldviews. They don't really care about him. They have their own set of beliefs. It's been conjectured from their own buttholes, from seances with demons. I don't know where these ideas come from, um, where they originate. Of course, we know they come out of India and in new age teachings in the United States. They aren't they aren't justified they aren't um, from any place they're not from god they're just from people's own imaginations and so when you claim that there's a karmic cycle you really are just claiming it out of nothing and out of what others have told you it's not out of scripture it's not out of god's authority it's not out of anything anything authoritative at least and so when you say that you believe in a karmic cycle and that jesus came to do things and was a cool guy right you ignore all these portions of scripture that say what he actually did so i don't know what jesus you believe in but he's not the jesus of scripture he's not the jesus of history some Christian Universalists do see heaven as a place that we will go to spend eternity. But many Universalists, myself included, see heaven more as a state of consciousness that we attain through growth and purification. So all that to say that no, most Universalists don't believe that people are just dying and going to wake up in heaven. Actually, this is what Evangelicals believe, that people... Evangelicals. Believing Christians People who have faith in Christ are going to die and wake up in heaven without consequences for their actions. So again, if there are any infernalists watching this or any who believe in the penal substitutionary atonement theory, I could turn this question back on you. You're the ones who believe that Jesus had to earn our right standing with God and that all we have to do is have faith in what Jesus did to be let into a literal afterlife place called heaven where we will stay for all of eternity. 
it's not true but yes it, we'll stay there for a while until the earth is remade then we'll go on the new earth but yes if that's true why would anybody live a good life because you can repent as you're dying and get led into heaven regardless of what you've done argument number three so we, we touched on this earlier in our rebuttal, but because there are rewards for heaven and also there's just pain temporary in this life for rejecting Jesus and not living a good life here. So double whammy. Not only is it better for you here to, to follow Jesus and his law, but also it's better for you in heaven. So you still get into heaven and, and really eternal life is really what it is. Yes, heaven is a temporary holding place until we're on the new earth, but eternal life is still granted. But there are different rewards for, for better lives here. If universalism is true, then how can God be just? I've addressed this in... We asked that in mm -hmm. several previous videos, so I won't go into a lot of depth here. But just briefly, in response, I would say if universalism isn't true, then how can God be just? I guarantee it, though, we'll hear what she has to say that this comes down to her perception of what good is. And she thinks a good God, by her definition, of course, not by God's, mm -hmm. is a God that only shows love. And we would say that a loving God actually shows um, ferocious hate for what is evil and the love for what is good and that real love does hate what is evil just like a loving father on earth um, kills an intruder that tries to kidnap their children right so too god punishes sin because he's just and good that's what love is so your definition of love i'm assuming what you're about to explain is not god's definition of love and of course it's not like i said the original sin of mankind is believing that we could tell what good was from evil when we really can't we have to turn to god that's why we try our best to root what we know and what we claim is good and what we claim is bad from scripture, which we believe to be God's word, not our own word. Because I could come up with what I think is good all day, and people do. Um, and I'm, I'm a man that has the same problems that Adam did when he ate that fruit. I often think that I know what is good and it's not actually good, or I think it's bad and it's not actually bad. Um, but that's why we're trying to, in our theological beliefs, hold to God's word, not our own understanding. And that helps clear and have better communication in that sense, because... If we're all conjecturing from ourselves, we're going to end up having 8 billion different gods because we're going to want to build God in our image. Right. And then we will never get anywhere. Everyone's just going to go. We're going to go all like sheep astray. No reference to Isaiah. Mm -hmm. And nothing's going to get done. There's no truth at that point because if, if the way you're describing God to be is based on how you think he should be or what you think is good. That's going to be very different than us. It's going to be very different than your neighbor, your your siblings, your parents, whoever it may be. We're all going to have different views on God. Is. However, praise God that he is not like us because if you, let's look at Greek mythology. Let's look at Norse mythology and all the other mythologies in which humans actually build God in their image. Oh my goodness, they're cheating. They're stabbing each other all the time. They're abusing humans because they're very human-like. Right. God is perfect. He is just. He is so much more than just us hence why we can look up to him and he is the standard for good and righteousness not in ourselves and ultimately like you just uh, touched on we care about what's true so you can you can determine something that you like better right you like this belief better than that belief this sounds better to you this makes more sense to you but that's not ultimately what's important because you can believe that you can fly all, all, all day long and it doesn't affect you until you try to jump out a window and if you can't actually fly then you will die right so the consequences for your beliefs hit at some point in your life right probably at death at least if not in this life and so we don't care what makes you feel good we care about what is good what is true and that's what the question is so do you melissa care about what's true or just what you want to believe because if you care about what's true you need to go to an objective standard which is the word of god it's not 
your own understanding or your own feelings. Is it justice to torment anybody for eternity? Why is it that justice has come to be equated with eternal torment? Justice means fair consequences for actions. So wouldn't it be just to have God allow every person to experience the exact consequences required for their own actions? But the exact consequences for their own actions is eternal death. That's exactly what he does. Infinite God, infinite punishment. That's that's what justice is. You're just confused, misunderstood. Um, you, you misunderstand what, what the consequences for sin are. You think they're finite. They're not. They're, they're infinite. In this sense, only somebody who had performed eternal torment would deserve eternal torment. It's not how punishments work. Again, sin against an eternal God means eternal punishment. Just like sin against a big authority like a government is much bigger and ends up with a bigger punishment than sin against your brother or sister or your parents or whatever, right? If you punch your brother um, in your family, right, you get a timeout or you go to your room or you get grounded for a week. If you punch the president, you'll probably be thrown in prison for the rest of your life, right? If you punch God, well, of course, you'll be damned forever. That's that's the way the escalation of punishments work. And all sins against our brothers and sisters, you are transgressing against someone who's right. in the image of God. You are insulting God in the process. Yep. As a just reward. No one in a time-limited world has the ability to torment anybody eternally. So how is eternal Because none of us are eternal, right? Like we can't torture. I can't torture you for eternity, Michael. Well, that's why she's saying that it, you, by definition, you have to have finite punishment. But but there is an eternal being who we are yes, sinning against, which is God. So again, foundations here. Where are you getting this? Your definition of fairness is it from God or is it from yourself? Right. And we don't want fairness from God because we would all be decapitated on the spot if you know He was just he was instantaneously up. judging us, right? ever a fair punishment now i know a lot of christians will come back with the argument god isn't actually the ones tormenting them they're choosing to be separated from god and it's not really a biblical view like we sometimes say that because it is kind of popular to say because people don't want to be so hard on hell but um, the description of hell is everlasting fire punishment it's a fire prepared for the devil and his angels it's, as it's said in revelation so it um I would say it's hard to argue that it's just a punishment of your own doing in hell. It's clearly a place that, of torment prepared by God. Again, for the wicked, so it's a just place for them to be in. And therefore they bring the resulting torment of being away from God's presence upon themselves. So in a finite, time-limited life, you make the wrong choice. And the consequences of that is that you have to be separated from God for eternity. How is that fair or just? And don't even get me started on the people who have never heard the name of Jesus or the people who grew up with an abusive Christian parent that turned them off to the faith. How? Yes, here's very fascinating because I used to have that mentality. I think I even asked you before when, when you I was in a Christian, mm -hmm. saying, what about those people who have never heard? How is that fair? Fair according to whom? Do, again, remember, we've gone over this on our Reformed part episodes as well. What is fairness? What is just? Who deserves to be saved? Does anyone, use, notice the words, deserve to hear about Jesus? No one, not me, not Michael, not anybody in this planet, dis except for Jesus, deserves to know about Jesus. Because no one is good, no one is just. Right. Like, does the person, does the tribe member in the Congo, is he not sinful? Now, I agree that having known the knowledge of Jesus and rejecting him is a worse sin than having not known. And so the Bible accepts that and says that there are those who 
who are ignorant, then it's they're less worse off than those who are knowingly rebelling against God. But both are in the same terrible boat of being under the sin of Adam and therefore being sinful men who rebel against God in their lives. So the punishment still stands for them, right? Whether they had the opportunity or not. Um, God's grace is a gift. It's not a um, right. How is it just in any way, shape, or form for somebody to be eternally separated from God for anything that they do in this life? It's nonsense. It's illogical. And it's perfectly logical. We'll get infinite God, infinite punishment. Finally, argument number four. If universalism is true, then why did Jesus talk about hell? That's what we've been saying this whole time. You've got to go back to scripture. Of course, she's ignored scripture this whole time. I'd love to see her talk about it now. Short answer. He didn't. Excellent. There are several New Testament texts that people will point to where our English versions of the Bible say hell. But the Greek says Hades. It's death. What do you I've mean? Done and Gehenna and, and the epistles also talk about hell, Tartarus, etc. So pretty uh -huh. undeniably death. The second death is also in... Um, in Jesus' own words, you know, this is the second death. And then also in Revelation, of course, this is, this is the second death. So the outer darkness, the weeping and gnashing of teeth, what would you call that? Punishment. Sheol is what I would call it, but at least um, some sort of punishment in the afterlife, right? That's eternal. And so equally in many of the parables, like all the parables that Jesus gives to his apostles in Matthew before he goes to the cross are about the 10 foolish virgins and the 10 wise virgins and the wise virgins are let into the banquet of the, the bridegroom and the 10 foolish virgins are kept outside where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth and then jesus warns the listener so therefore be ready for when i come back because this could be you right because you don't know the day or hour i'm coming what would you call that if it is not a translation issue there that's a a concept issue if you have an issue with that or the wheat and the tares or the wheat and the, the tares. tares will be thrown into a fire to be burned right and then the the wheat brought into the barn so that burning that destruction is clearly a punishment it doesn't matter whatever whatever translation you use in-depth videos on these passages previously which i will link below for you but the fact is that in jesus time a belief in an eternal afterlife torment in hell simply had not developed within judaism it's not wrong they had she that's the that is wrong they had sheol the grave that they believed was torment, except for Abraham's bosom, which they believe was paradise. So that's totally wrong. And to this day, I don't believe that it has. Their word Gehenna, that is typically translated hell in our English New Testaments, doesn't mean eternal torment. To a Jew, they will tell you that it is a limited period of time lasting at most 12 months. In which <laughs> I don't know what Jews you're talking to. So weird Reformed Jews, definitely traditional Orthodox Jews or conservative Orthodox Jews um, would say that Gehenna is hell. And certainly back in Jesus's time during the, um, what's it called? The, the temple time. I'm forgetting the period that it was called right there. Jesus's time. Um, the King Herod, Herodian's temple, the mm. Herodian temple time. Uh, they definitely believed in a actual hell. Now the Sadducees did not because they didn't believe in eternal life at all, eternal death or eternal life. But it was not a, it was a perfectly orthodox belief in Judaism back then of Sheol and even conservative Orthodox Jews today. Which a soul is purified. Now I'm currently in the process of researching how afterlife beliefs developed leading up to the time of Jesus. And I probably will do more videos on this topic in the future. But just briefly, according to Bart Ehrman, a world-renowned atheist, New Testament 
theologian. During Jesus' Goodness gracious. Time, the Orthodox Jewish afterlife belief revolved around the resurrection. Now, I grew up in church and I did not know this. The Jews and the early Christians did not believe in the immortal soul. They did not believe that we have a consciousness that lived on after death. They believed that after death, we basically went to sleep until the end of the age and the time of the arrival of the messianic kingdom on earth. It's not really, I mean, it's arguable, but it's not really true. Like there's the only, the only thing we get out of the scriptures on that front is David saying that my soul cannot praise you from Sheol, which is the grave. Um, but I don't think that that is claiming that he will be asleep in the grave. Um, I believe that's just claiming that he can't praise God in punishment, right? In, in Sheol, we're separated from God. And now we believe he would have gone to Abraham's bosom. When Christ gives his, his parable about the rich man and Lazarus who are in Abraham's bosom, so Sheol and then full Sheol, uh, it, I don't think it was shocking to any Jews. It wasn't supposed to be a shocking analogy. It was supposed to really highlight the fact that there was a rich person who you think is good and he ends up going to bad Sheol, and then, and then a, a poor person you think is bad ends up in Abraham's bosom. Abraham's bosom and Sheol were already a concept of the Jews way before his time and at the time, too. So I think you're just straight mistaken, and so is Bart Ehrman. When God would resurrect our bodies, reunite our spirits with our bodies, and we would live again on earth to reap either the rewards or the punishments of what we had earned in our previous life. So when Jesus spoke of hell, and again, the Greek word there is actually Gehenna, there's a number of, That's the Hebrew word, but. of things that he could have meant. First, the word Gehenna was used in the book of Jeremiah in reference to the Babylonian overthrow of Israel. Jeremiah prophesies that they will be burned with unquenchable fire, and this prophecy was fulfilled when Babylon overthrew Israel. So first, Jesus could have been referencing the historic prophetic tradition of Jeremiah and saying, just as they were destroyed by the fires of Gehenna, you also will be destroyed by the fires of Gehenna. And predicting the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, some want to say that Jesus was predicting the destruction of Jerusalem because the Jews were stubborn and disobedient. To me, that's bordering on anti-Semitism. I would <laughs> just say... Uh, what? <laughs> what? I guess the Old Testament is bordering on anti-Semitism too when, he, when Jeremiah gives the prophecy about eternal fire, uh, the Babylonian punishment. Uh, did we miss the part that Jesus is a Jew? Maybe Jesus was predicting that this was going to happen and let's not place blame on anybody for it. <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, if you read the Bible, you'll see Jesus squarely places the blame on the Pharisees and the obstinate people. It's not, it's not us alt-right anti-Semites that are doing that. The second thing that Jesus could have meant with his use of the word Gehenna is that he could have, as an Orthodox Jew, been referencing the punishment that the wicked would receive after the resurrection when they came to live again on earth. So, Which is what we would be saying, yes. I believe the Gehenna is a reference to the second death um, when he says it as opposed to the first death. So I agree with her that it's after the resurrection, after Sheol. Gehenna is the eternal punishment. Mm -hmm. Assuming Jesus was an Orthodox Jew, he would not have been talking about an... I would hope you assume that considering he is one and is said to be one, baptized on the eighth day and all the rest. Yes, and a Jew, let's you know, just make that clear, he's not an anti-Semite. Yes, because <laughs> he is a Semite. 
torment and an eternal lake of fire because they didn't believe in such a thing. They well, believe what a great way then to bring some scripture. They didn't believe in the lake of fire. Well, then let's take it up with the book of Revelation, I would say, who, mm -hmm. in which John, an apostle of Jesus, faithfully writes down this. So this is from Revelation 20. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades, Sheol, gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades, Hades, were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So it's really undeniable, I think, that there is this second death, as it was just described, in the Christian liturgy, in the, in the tradition of God's word, in Revelation. Now, what it sounds like, let's say you're really rejecting that Jesus said anything about this. And so you're trying to redirect this Gehenna with the Gehenna that John talks about in um, Revelation. Now, we would say they're parallel. Of course, we would say that scripture is consistent and that his apostles interpreted Jesus perfectly because of the Holy Spirit. So clearly you don't respect God's word the way we do. Um, and you're creating your own Jesus. I think that's a very dangerous place to be. You're creating your own faith and you, I don't think are describing accurately the true Jesus. You're making up a Jesus that you can faithfully ignore, um, which is very dangerous. And we would call you and any other of those who follow you or those that are listening at all to come to faith in Jesus Christ, who actually can save, who really does substitute for your payment, that your payments and the consequences, as you keep talking about, Melissa, are real. That you do have to pay the consequences of your life. And if you do, you will suffer forever in Gehenna it's not a temporary punishment. It is an eternal punishment. And even if it was temporary, you still would want to avoid it. Come to life instead in Christ. Christ offers eternal life, just like there is eternal death. He offers eternal life with God forever, not only in heaven, but also in the second life to come. So we ask you to repent and turn and be saved by the true Jesus Christ instead of rejecting him and running to man-made gods. In rewards and punishments to be experienced here on earth after the resurrection in the kingdom of God during the reign of the Messiah on earth. Third thing that Jesus could have meant when he used the word Gehenna. There is some evidence that instead of being an Orthodox Jew, Jesus may have been a Jewish mystic. The Jewish mystics. Oh, yes, the evidence, the laboratories. They've analyzed pieces of his hair to see. believe in the immortal soul. And to the Jewish mystic, Gehenna could have been one of two things. It so there, she's claiming that Jesus was a Sadducee when he explicitly rejected the Sadducees and said to them, as for, he said, as for the resurrection, have you not read what God spoke to you? That is, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Refuting the Sadducees' belief that there was no afterlife, saying that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were still alive in the second life in heaven. Really, in Abraham's wisdom at that point. Um, so he directly addresses your thing, your theory, pet theory, that he's a mystic who doesn't believe in the immortal soul explicitly. You don't even have to read into the text. He says it right there. So your strange evidence must be some pretty queer evidence, considering it's a direct refutation of his quotes in scripture. <laughs> It could have been a place of purification or number two, it could have been a reference to reincarnation because. Yep. He was a Hindu. 
knew it all along. He trained in the Himalayas. Isn't that what the new age? Isn't that what spirit? Throw back to our spirit yeah, yeah. science uh-huh. episode that Jesus went to Tibet and became We've an had, enlightened uh, guru. Other in our, our Dharma Speaks reaction video, there's some um, Hindus that have been in the comments saying the same thing. Which is, so it's a, a widely held belief in of, of Hindus and New Age people that he did. Cool. No taken. Yeah. Mystics did believe that people would at times be reincarnated to work out the consequences of actions in their past lifetime. Between these four possible views of what Jesus could have meant, eternal torments in an afterlife fiery hell comes up nowhere. It could have been a reference to earthly destruction of Jerusalem. It could have been reference to punishment that the wicked would receive on this earth in the age to come. I think you misunderstand what the punishment the wicked receive on this earth is, because that's what hell is. That's you're resurrected to the second death. That's that's what hell is. So that <laughs> that's the same thing. That's what it is. It could have been a reference to a place of purification or purgatory in the afterlife so that then people would be cleansed and ready to experience the presence of God or it could have been a reference to reincarnation. The absolute least likely chance is that Jesus was talking about an eternal torment in hell as That's the least likely chance. More likely that he refutes his own words and is actually a Jewish mystic. As we believe it today. In order to get this understanding out of Jesus's references to Gehenna, you have to paste passages together from the Gospels and from Thessalonians and Jude. Oh no. And Revelation. You have to take a full orb view of scripture. And read all of these passages from a 21st century frame. From a 21st century lens. This 20th century people didn't understand hell. You have to have had the internet. Then you can understand hell. Framework. None of these passages first were meant to be interpreted in light of each other because the authors that were writing these say the author that wrote which, the book which is the Holy Spirit, which is God, which is the one communicating the truth from beginning to end. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Yep. The book of Matthew had no knowledge that anyone was writing the book of Revelation or the book of Jude. And I of course don't a, you mean his friend? John. Well, well at, at the she, moment, yes, he yes, know yes. that he's going to write it, right? Yeah, but the fact that Scripture Week consistent is a good thing, isn't it? I don't have time to get into all of that today, but I just bring this up to make the point that it's not as simple as pointing to an English version of the Bible and saying, "See, Jesus taught about hell." No, that's the result of the last two thousand years of us interpreting and reinterpreting the Bible from our own modern-day frame of reference. I realize. You do know that Christians in the Middle Ages believed in hell a lot stronger than modern Christians do, too. So it feels like the 21st century lens is what is allowing you to create some weird hippie view of Jesus who doesn't believe in actual hell. Whereas the closer you get to the time frame of Jesus's actual teaching, the more readily hell is talked about throughout Christian Europe. So I, I, I don't think you're right there. I wouldn't always go back to, to past times and say they were more right back then, because like we said, things have developed over these times. But you're blaming the 21st century lens for infertilism well you say infernalism has been there for for centuries for millennia so it's not a 21st century invention your view of reincarnation is much more of a 21st century strange addition to the christian faith than infernalism might i add please let's take it for christians who are in depth diving deep into mystic taoist confucian buddhist territory the chinese christians themselves the right. southern christians from, well, I don't have the exact quote from one of the Jesus Sutras. And again, they're named Sutras, so you know there's clearly some Eastern communication there. There is uh, Aloben, 
the first missionary to China, in one of his sutras, he writes that Jesus died in order to correct, to atone for as a sacrifice. Again, sacrifice. He's in China. He is in the middle of Buddhist territory. No reincarnation in there. To atone, to restore to proper relationship to God. What Adam had done, like the, the bad works that Adam had done, Jesus died in order to bring harmony, to bring us to proper relationship with God. So... And if you don't have that, then you will be permanently separated from God. I'm paraphrasing here, but that is pretty much from taken from someone who was the man behind the book over here. He's got a whole book that you can see it if you're not watching a video. But he bought this this obscure scholarly thing about Chinese Christians in the uh, middle of time, 800s, thousands. I don't remember. It would have been 600s when Christianity is introduced to China reportedly for the first time and then eventually the mongols again bring it back in the 12 ironically of all people the mongols bring christianity to china in the 1200s but point being really easy to become a buddhist become a confucian they had all these similar beliefs but no as a contrast he's writing it down and presenting it to the emperor himself so he can see this is what christianity is about look at this and you can see we're trying to go into history here to prove what the christians have believed back then how it's been presented throughout time of course we go to the scriptures we went objective views for why we believe what we believe, not just our own vain philosophies. And so I think you're on very dangerous ground, Melissa. I don't think you're saved right now. You're holding to views that are not only heretical by order of the church, but also they're just antithetical to what the Bible and what God's message truly is. You're building your own belief, your own religion that is not going to save you. So please come to Christ. I beg you and I beg your followers to. This is a topic that probably needs a lot more background. I do plan to share a lot more information on this in the future, but that's all I've got for you today. Be loved, be happy, be at peace, and thank you for watching. All right, super long episode. Didn't want to flippantly uh, address it. We've done response videos where we've been more flippant than others, but this one, because she's so gentle in her responses, wanted to be gentle and slow in our mm -hmm. responses, I would recommend you put two times speed on this bad boy and fly through it if you're crazy like me. It's like an hour and 20 that we've got here. But this is why we have found our cause in serving the Lord Jesus Christ, the true one. I've been Michael Lamb behind the machine, and to my right, your left has been Sebastian, the bookkeeper. Thanks for listening. If you want to see the rest of our episodes, you can go to foundcause.podbean.com and download them all for your listening pleasure, but that's just audio only. If you want to see our video and beautiful faces and Melissa's beautiful face, you can go to foundcause.facebook.com forward slash foundcause or YouTube and search us there. We're also on iTunes and Spotify and wherever else you might find your podcast. Until next time, we talk about something completely different. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Goodbye.